Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined, as always, by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Yeehoo, people! And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. Now, we have a big show planned. We are talking Kodachrome, which screened at the American Essentials Film Festival and is in cinemas in the coming weeks. In June 7, I believe. June 7, the opening day of the Sydney Film Festival, or second day of the Sydney Film Festival. It's going to be a really tough choice, Yeah, yeah. As, as we'll discuss. Yeah, really tough. What do we do? And then the next <laughs> film, are we also talking about Deadpool 2 in a moment. We will also be having a discussion about new Diablo Cody film, Tully. This is a difficult one to discuss without spoilers, so we will be doing a spoiler-free discussion, followed by a spoiler-filled discussion. But you don't want to hear spoilers full pelt in the radio, so guys, how are we going to manage this? Okay, it's been a long time coming. But, drum drum roll, roll. we are on iTunes. iTunes! You can look us up. We're there. Film Fight Club. It's just Film Fight Club. The only Film Fight Club. Every single episode is on iTunes. So you can look up the last one or you could just stream us all for like, I don't know how many hours. Yeah, just binge. Yeah, subscribe. You you know, you don't have to listen to 2SER anymore, ever again. (laughs) Abandoned community community radio. Keep listening to 2SER. I'm turning off this mic here. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, Please do keep listening to 2SER because they're keeping us on the air. And we we would not be on iTunes if no one listened to us on 2SER. But but also, uh, I have it on... uh, uh, proper authority if you hate Apple and you're an Android person you can still listen to us uh, through Podcatcher so you know if you like to get your iPod fix through Android you can still search for our podcast Phone Fight Club and you'll find us there or if you can't use anything that's on an iPhone like myself then you can listen to us on a regular iPhone and just binge like Netflix just all no, go through the year of movies with us yeah yep. you know and we're really funny and sometimes, you know, not all, yeah, always, always, sometimes, funny. always, yeah, yeah. We're, we're reliably, <laughs> sometimes funny. That should be our, our slogan. We're funny 40% of the time, all the time, yes. 40, so, 40, 40% funny, 100% dudes. So, <laughs> so true. So, yeah, we, we actually wanted to break the patriarchal film, you know, fight club down again this episode with a female guest, but we repelled all women. Within a few kilometers of us, so we were unable to get a guest for this episode. But what we will be doing is hashtag not all radio shows. But you'll get to hear three guys discuss, the, you know, the issues of child of childbirth and <laughs> you know post maternal depression. In tonight. for yeah, Tully, spoiler, yeah. spoiler free for the end of the show, and then in podcast form, look us up, look it up. Spoiler filled. Skip to the 30 minute mark and there you'll have it. Yeah. But we will be having many, many more guests on during the Sydney Film Festival where we'll be doing a great deal more coverage than usual. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, this is pretty much the last episode you're going to get of our regular show before we just get taken over by a Sydney Film Festival. Um, So you know what that means. Extended coverage. Not just that. I don't have to watch Solo. Yes! <laughs> oh, solo, Solo, Solo. I'm, I'm, I'm still kidding. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Solo. But we are not talking about Solo. We are talking Ever. about... Ever. We are talking about another crazy, ridiculous film which had some interesting development stories going around it, and that is Deadpool Another movie 2. where the directors were fired. Right. R- both of those, oh. Solo and, and Deadpool 2, both had the original directors fired. Wow. Oh, I didn't realize that. So it yeah. doesn't bode well for the film. It may reflect, be reflected in certain elements of it. This is the sequel to the 2016 hit Deadpool, Deadpool 2 The Second Coming. It is starring Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool or Deadpool as Ryan Reynolds. We're really not sure at this point. It's all a little bit mixed I, up. I, I think they're both the same person by this point. They, they're just, they're, yes, Ryan Reynolds is Deadpool. Ryan Reynolds is, yeah, he's channeling it. He's, he's uh, credited as co-writing the script of this one. Wow. Which means yeah. he basically just ad-libbed a whole bunch of sequences, which probably, I probably yeah. believe. I can yeah. very well believe. Yeah. Redeeming yeah. himself for all those into Green Deadpool. Lantern times. Oh, yeah. as they did explicitly in this film, which was one of the more make reference fl- to it. hilarious moments. This also stars Josh Brolin as Deadpool's arch-nemesis Cable, New Zealand's Julian Dennison of Hunt for the Wilder People fame, and Zazie Beetz as Domino One, part of the X-Force team. Now, in terms of the plot... I it's very similarly along the lines of the first film. Same line, same shtick. What to expect? Goes Deadpool. Got a Deadpool. Very similar. Um, very similar comedy to the original film. Yeah, there's a lot of issues with this. Um, in summary, I would say 
if you see this, if you, and you like the first film, you won't be disappointed. That's not a criticism. It's if you just, like Deadpool 1, yeah. Yeah, it's just not the best thing that can be said about it. But I mean, what you would like to say about it, but is, but unfortunately. Josh Brolin's abs in this movie. You mean Thanos? Yeah, no, just his abs. Fantastic. Well, he's good in this. I mean, and yeah, and good looking. That's what I'm trying to say. This this was a bit of a mixed bag, I would say. The action is... I mean, okay, full disclosure, I didn't like Deadpool 1. And as we were saying before, this is really more of the same. So I didn't like Deadpool 2. But first, what's better about it than Deadpool 1? Um, the action, uh, is it's now directed by David Leitch, who co-directed John Wick 1. Um, one of the guys who John, John Wick's dog, according to the According to the credits. opening credits. And uh, it's a big upgrade on the action in Deadpool the original, um, I actually thought a lot of the action sequences in this are very engaging and yeah. pretty creative and fun to watch. In fact, I'd say they're some of the best I've seen in recent superhero movies, if not the, the best. The scenes involving Domino and how luck as a superpower is used yeah. are really creative. Hilarious. And I really, yeah, um, really enjoyed it. There's a really good highway chase, as well as a, a long physical brawl between um, Deadpool and Josh Brolin, which surprised me because those hand-to-hand kind of slugfests are usually... No shaky cam. Yeah, are usually really boring in superhero movies, but I, I actually thought this was just simple and fun to watch. Well, I actually took issue with some of the action scenes because David Leach and from John Wick and as you saw in Atomic Blonde has this incredibly kinetic thrill where he doesn't, the camera doesn't shy away, it's very upfront, and it's very physical hand-to-hand combat. This was evident with Cable, Brolin's character, but not so much with Deadpool because there they can go the full gamut of having him do ridiculous outlandish things when someone's body could literally fall apart and get back together. And it was the same with some of the other characters. I found any this prison sequence with Brolin yeah, was outstanding for that. Great. But it wasn't uh, the, all the other sequences didn't find were up to up to that up to that level up to scratch. Right. I think there are major problems with the plot of this movie and how that relates to the constant fourth wall breaking that Deadpool does. Okay. Basically, the plot in this is really really stupid. Um, I think the original Deadpool got by on a very simple formulaic revenge movie plot, which I thought was satisfying enough to watch. It was a better version of Taken. Yeah, it's like, you know, Deadpool has to get back at the people who did something to him. You know, it it follows all the beats, but was done in a competent, satisfying manner. This has essentially no story, you know. There's no Um, villain. Well, there, there is no there. There being no villain, I don't think is a problem because there's there's antagonists and there's the stakes for Deadpool to go uh, against. But basically, the movie is about Deadpool um, becoming attached to and trying to protect a kid. But the whole movie is in this really ironic register, so it doesn't sell the sincere emotion you need for this idea of Deadpool bonding with or feeling like he needs to be the guardian or protector of this kid. So, um, and his motivation for doing so is because he hears it in a riddle that he no, that he uh, in a riddle in a dream. I thought, are, are you serious? It's interesting you you say that because I felt the emotion in this film was probably more heartfelt than the first movie. I think that connect, and especially. Deadpool actually feeling the consequences of his actions in the beginning was probably one of the more somber moments in the entire franchise. Can we call it a franchise? I mean, yeah, yeah. Franchise. That, that opening... Sorry, I'd like to hear what Glenn says. Oh, no, I, just, I mean, I'm more, in, I'm more inclined to agree with Chris for the simple reason that this the, the issue becomes that Deadpool is a film which is at its best when it is going for its marked irreverence, what the character in the comics is known for. The kid storyline is very, very similar to a very popular science fiction film from about six years ago, which you will know and recognize as soon as you begin to watch this film. It's also very similar to Terminator, as the movie is. It makes pains to reference. And that's just the thing. I mean, when you do cultural references, it's fine so much when um, you don't have T.J. Miller or someone else to quite literally point it out. But yeah, the emotional can we, can stakes... Can just, like, ban T.J. Miller from appearing in anything? The, the emotional stakes which they were going for is you can't balance with the incredibly irreverent tone that they try to do but only got halfway throughout some of the film. Yeah, agreed. Um, Virat is saying that at the beginning of the film, you know, you feel the stakes, and I agree with that, but because the movie exists in this Deadpool, so zany and wacky, he's constantly referring to the fact that he's in a bad comic book movie. Um, it We pretty much gloss over... That you know that emotional depth immediately like there's a big opening credit sequence which goes into wacky parody mode and then after that it's pretty much forgotten about. It's meant to be the motivating and instigating um, 
incident for Deadpool, and then it just doesn't matter that much. Um, I think you're right. In, in terms of tone, this movie is kind of all over the place. All over the place, Because yeah. they don't know exactly what's the balance they need to strike in terms of irreverence or sincerity. Yeah. But at the same time, I felt this movie was more sincere than the first one. The first one was trying too hard Look, to the, actually establish the convention that's trying to break. There's some nice, you know, more emotional scenes relating to Deadpool's relationship, you know, towards the end of the movie, but the really um the movie really tries to have it both ways because it seems to be going for A this very Deadpool joke there, Chris. It seems to be going to have both ways. It seems to be going in this like, you know, well yeah, that this plot is stupid. Deadpool points out that it's bad writing or whatever, you know, um so it's fine, but no, it's not good enough to just no, you know, acknowledge that you're stupid. If you're going to poke fun at how bad the the writing is, first of all, wouldn't it be more satisfying to see an actually well-written movie with a good story? And secondly, this movie is not smart enough to get away with that. It still adheres to stupid cliches, um, like the instigating incident, which I'm not going to reveal because yeah. it's a, a big spoiler um, that they've tried to hide in the marketing. Uh, you know, it's a pretty dumb movie. It's about Deadpool trying to stop someone from getting a taste for murder by killing a bunch of dudes. But the thing is... You it's, it's stupid, if you think about it for a moment. Well, it's engaging to an extent, but it's n- not as engaging when you see the shtick the exact same time around. I refer to the opening credit sequence, and I enjoyed it the first time, but I've seen it the second time, and you refer to the marketing campaign. This is the second film now where the marketing campaign is far and beyond more interesting than the actual film. The Celine Dion song, uh, Deadpool trolling Eurovision, tying with Manchester United, taking over Colbert's monologue taking over South Korean singing competition look, as a unicorn. Okay, I, I like Still to not as good as Fifty Shades Freed though. Look, there was an early trailer for this movie where Cable appeared without his CGI and then Deadpool stopped and reenacted it, you know, a scene of him fighting Cable with action figures while he put the CGI in the microwave and when it was ready then Cable, you know, the movie it resumed with Cable. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that's that's clever. That's creative kind of fourth wall breaking. What we get in Deadpool is basically a standard superhero movie that isn't really even genuinely a comedy. It's just a standard action movie, except that Deadpool looks to the camera and makes reference to the DC universe being bad and or dubstep or something, Thanos which just gets is, very tiring. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's not written as a genuine, clever comedy. It's um, written like a series of pop culture references. Exactly. It's it's very Family Guy. The th- um, <laughs> there's there's a sequence in the middle of this film which is a genuine creative comedy sequence, which is very dark, involving a... <laughs> yeah, I was about to say it, yeah. Yeah, involving an operation gone wrong, which shows what this movie could have been if it had been written around comedy set pieces and it, how, how much better it had potential to be. It's a parody of every single... These action sequences appear in a lot of the Fast and Furious James Bond-type films. Exactly, And they're yeah. taking the piss out of it in a way that is actually quite legitimate because this is what happens if the film would likely transpire in real life. That's right. The dubstep <laughs> reference you made reminded me of something. There's a line at the end of this movie where they say, okay, you're probably going to go home now and look up what dubstep is. And I thought... Well, everyone's watching this knows what dubstep is, but hang on. They're probably saying that for people in the future because who are going to be watching this movie because dubstep will be dated and forgotten about by then. But then, hang on. That made me think, how is anybody going to make any sense of this movie in the future? It's going to be so dated because all of the script is is about references to current pop culture. This, mo- this is such a disposable film by design. Um, but, and, but isn't that the point? The point is that instant gratification... Is enough. You can be irreverent, but still be endearing. I agree. Okay. But there's no irreverence. I think it is purely to satisfy, you know, the hit list for current affairs. Like This is what's going on right now, and tick all the boxes. Exactly. It's not even going for irreverence. There's no actually... I don't think not, there's, there's not, not much wit to it. There's it's not, just very simple. Like, you get the laugh of, ha-ha, I recognize that. I yeah. agree that DC is bad. Yeah, this is more like Ready Player One, actually, in Ac- that sense. Actually, one more, one more note on that. Um... They make fun of Batman versus Superman for the stupid way that it keeps the heroes fighting against each other. And oh, oh, we realize that both of our mothers' names are Martha. But this movie is actually just as bad in the way that it artificially keeps its uh, antagonist and protagonist fighting against each other. Cable and Deadpool keep battling, but if they had stopped for even a moment before they started coming to blows to say, hey, why are you doing this? And, and, you know, tra- exchanged a few words with each other. We'd skip right th- through till the third act in terms of the yeah. plot progression oh, yeah. of this movie. The Most of the film is just Deadpool and Cable because they've never spoken to each other 
at all or said more than like a few grunts, just fighting each other constantly. It's it's, it's weird. It's just stupidity. But but also a weird sort of acknowledgement of male toxic toxicness. No, I mean, don't no, give no, Deadpool no, that no, much no, credit. No, I, I, I just think it's But look, you know, but, I think from our like, perspective, just acknowledging that that you know, as dudes, they need to fight it out rather than actually talk to each other. But look, <laughs> I think movies should not be motivated in their plot by characters being stupid unless that's actually the point of the movie and Verrett you're talking about it as if the point is oh they're toxic males and they're stupid but no 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 they're just stupid for the sake of creating action sequences this is the thing Deadpool the cachet of it the cultural cachet of the character has always been taking the mickey out of superhero grand scale design and what I was frustrated about the first one was that it, while it was trying to take the piss out of this it ended on this ridiculously big blustering finale it didn't do that here and I appreciate that yeah. but it fell under so many of the constraints and just things that superhero films rely on that it is trying to lampoon exactly. but doesn't creating villains where they don't need to be a villain as as we see with cable yeah you know the, the whole school thing like yeah yeah so that is deadpool 2 it is in cinemas now the one piece one of the elements i did enjoy aside from brief appearance by tragedy girls De- brianna hildebrand who is excellent is the one character in this film who i feel actually developed it was more interesting this time around and that was the taxi driver Depinda, who was absolutely hilarious and we are going to play a song which featured in his cab in the film for what is this this is called yuhi chala chal rahi which is also an ar rayman number so i am going to continue with my ar rayman reference enjoy we'll be right back And we are back on Film Fight Club. The next film we are talking about is Kodachrome, which came to the American Essentials Film Festival and it's in cinemas from June 7. It is starring Jason Sudeikis as a record producer at a low point in his life. He has not spoken in quite some time to his famous photographer father, played by Ed Harris. Um, His father's personal assistant and nurse, played by Elizabeth Olsen, enters uh, Jason Sudeikis' character's life to tell him that his father is dying and that he wants to go to the last place in the world that develops Kodachrome roles of photos. He has four roles, which is in Kansas, so as in every independent film, you need a road trip. <laughs> Here we go. On, on which they embark. Oh now, this is... Okay, so a few months ago, um, they took the fellow from uh, Silicon Valley and made a an AI wrote a film called Sunspring. It, it absorbed hundreds of screenplays from science fiction, film, and television and put it into one short, and the AI regurgitated what he thought a science fiction short should be. If you put thousands of indie scripts into... Sundance movies, specifically Sundance in, yeah, into an AI and put it together, you'd probably get something a little bit, a few notches below this. This hits every single recognizable beat of every indie movie. Man, oh my God. All right. American cinema is doomed. You heard it here first. Yeah, I heard it here first. Like, remember when independent film was meant to be about getting away from formula? Yeah. You know, now the studios have reached a point where they're producing so much samey product that the indies have moved up to filling in with, you know, to create the other kinds of formula movies that the studios have stopped making and rather than presenting anything new or different. Remember when an independent film would be something like Five Easy Pieces or Blue Velvet? Like something David actually Lee out of the box? Something out of the box and interesting. My God, how the mighty have fallen. It's interesting in that sense because I feel like this is paralleled this kind of in the literature scene as well of the great American novel, which is always about the Midwest. And I feel, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. it's all about these characters, especially male protagonists, kind of finding themselves and having some kind of generational issues. And, and you know, with Franzen being the now the great American novelist, it's essentially the same. And I feel a lot of that is now seeping into the great indie American movie. And I'm fine with an intergenerational film, except for the fact that the only two characters, the Ed Harris and Jason Staker's characters, are ones with 
anything beyond a one-dimensional plane. Every All the other characters, including the two other main characters, played by Elizabeth Olsen and Dennis Haysbert, are absolutely just smashed in the roles. There's an incredibly forced romance, but in terms of Dennis Haysbert, who's a superb actor, he basically rocks up, and there's a point where they say he kind of just knows everything. He's the guy who introduces things in the plot when you just need him introduced. He has absolutely no function beyond this. Yeah. Look, this is an incredibly lazy screenplay. It's essentially every cliche that comes to mind when you think of a dysfunctional family road trip movie or any this. It's this year's Little Meets Miss Sunshine. Yeah, there's actually a plot beat points point for point of Little Miss Sunshine in this Little Miss Sun- Sunshine woman. meeting August Osage County, maybe. Uh, no, not August Osage County. More like um any kind of like grumpy dad was an asshole but then what was the Bruce Dern movie from a few years back Nebraska but Nebraska was way better than this oh yeah of course so much more depth than this but then like every movie has grumpy dad who's American so I guess it's too many movies okay like in saying that it's predictable I should clarify a bit here like last week I was singing the praises of Speed Racer which is about as predictable as you can get so I don't think that (laughs) predictability is inherently a bad thing but I think when when I criticize a movie for being predictable what I mean is that it's delivering exactly what you imagine and never going above that you can see everything about what this movie is going to do and then it never adds any kind of twist either in the aesthetics and presentation or in the character dynamics they're exactly as you would imagine and the, the problem is that yeah, you, you begin to see the path, the very straight path that this uh, convertible is, is driving along very quickly because once the rhythm of the character introductions is est- sorry, the character interactions is established, they simply repeat. It's, it feels very repetitive and until changes in the dynamic happen all too quickly just because now there it's required by the beats in the script. It doesn't feel like a genuine development in terms of progression that changes the characters into different people. I'm going to try to segue from this to try and say something positive about this movie, even though it's very difficult to do so. Uh, Let's talk about Jason Sudeikis, because uh, he's transformed himself into this dramatic actor with quite a lot of interesting roles. I mean, the first sort of inkling we had of that was when he did this film with Alison Brie, Sleeping With Other People, which was genuinely funny, and he had this great role. And then with... Nacho Vigalondo film with Anne Hathaway and that was fantastic he was scary in that movie and I really bought him as this kind of you know this nice fuckboy image which he really created on screen which is interesting to begin with and and now in this sort of a dramatic role so I, I really give him chops for his role experimentation is really diversified as an actual dramatic actor. I, I wasn't sold by him, to be honest, in this. I, I wasn't particularly either. I think Ed Harris was better. I think Elizabeth Olsen was better in parts, even though her performance in Infinity War was much more compelling. Honestly, yeah, it was. She, she was. Her character just isn't that interesting in this. Yeah. You know, they, the attempt to give her depth is, is just there for, now it's time for the third act, you know, late second act complication, rather than because she actually, you believe that she's that kind of complicated character. And it's all stuff you've seen before, as is everything else in this movie. And I agree that the issue was that they introduced conflict for the sake of conflict. But on the Sudeikis character and his uh, performance, he was fine. I feel, I am impressed at his career trajectory, but he's, you can only be so good as, at times, as your material allows. He plays this figure we've seen so many times before. He, a literal plot point of his figure turns on having to bemoan how music isn't what it used to be. Oh, and there's a similar dynamic with the Ed Harris character who only developed portraits and photography in a certain method. He's bemoaning the decline of artistry as he knows it. Jesus and Christ. But, but, You're but mentioning it, one of the most annoying things yeah, about but, this movie. But isn't, isn't this the kind of postmodern sort of dichotomy of living where we kind of always in glorification mode about some kind of nostalgia that we... Yeah, except that the movie... That they drive it home. But the movie is, is like celebrating the character's belief in that. Like it's a good, you know, yeah, that, but, that but Jason I, Sudeikis stands for like, remember the time when, when the real rock bands playing real music with loud guitars and yeah. and, and Ed Harris is, remember the time when we didn't use these damn fangled digital bobbies and I used real chemical Pixels, processes. Pixels, Pixels. Like, uh, all right, we get it. You're trying to appeal to the people who would go yeah. to see movies at Indie Pixels. Everything about this movie is so goddamn calculated. I don't like. I didn't feel any kind of like genuine love from the director of this film of in in terms of like the processes of, of chemical. You know, actually, on that on that note, for a movie that's called Kodachrome and it's about photography, what a visually uninteresting movie! Oh like, yeah. Why, well, how about how about wow. yeah? How about a scene? You know, even showing like. 
the photochemical processes of developing the photos at the end. That could have been a father-son bonding moment. Yeah, Something a- like that to really get us into his love instead of just having him say, yes, I love I love um, photochemical processes. There was, it's, it's all like tell no, in a simple way and show nothing. But there was one real bonding moment and it was one organic moment which took place in a hotel room. Remember, Chris and I looked at each other as we saw this and it was in the hospital and it was fun. Oh, that was great, and yeah. It, it was a turn of the script but otherwise it felt like they were going block by block, paint exactly, by numbers. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but... It's dads, you know. Dads need to say "I love you" to their son because that's the resolution. It's always been that way. S- so, quite speaking of, <laughs> um, no, the resolution of this movie was such a groaner. Like the act, the final scene. It's like you can see it coming from so far away. But then, the, so it maybe could have worked if they'd really underplayed the moment. But instead, they portray it like it's this huge. Um, operatic kind of transcendent experience with the pounding soundtrack and the we can have a similar criticism of Tully in a few minutes yeah but you know you can just see how this came to be when in the end credits it's like okay so it's based on this New York Times report about people flooding to the last place where the Kodogram could be developed and you're okay okay so some screenwriters said let's turn that into a road trip movie father and son bonding and and oh I know what the finale is going to be you get to see the the photos that the father is is giving to the son guess what it's going to be yeah, you, if you can figure it out from what I'm saying now, then you know you've seen the film. You've seen the film, yeah. And it's fine when a film has the dramatic integrity to know that it doesn't rest on twists and it rests on your investment in the characters. This thought that it, it all rested on what the final reveal was, and yeah. the final reveal was very lax, also, very obvious. Like we've seen that in a lot of movies. And got- I, I think you guys just had too high expectations out of this indie film. I mean, <laughs> you guys were expecting Kelly Reichardt, and this is just any other normal American indie movie. No, I'm I sorry. Went, this it, is what the majority of the output is like yeah but, but it, that's why cinema's doomed and this, this, this <laughs> thing, it, it, but it was so derivative of those films yeah i and felt I, like I, this was just I, I would not you know i had i never thought about this movie except every now and again to go my god that was bad and i've got to say for a road trip movie there was no except for the very end there was no conception of distance travel there was no actual bits yeah, on the road yeah. it was only at a motel room the or montages of the cars of the yeah. car driving along whenever but, you think an indie movie can be bad just remember jason siegel played david foster wallace in the end of the tour and nothing can be worse than that so that was Kodachrome. It is in cinemas on June 7. Our selling point is it's not as bad as the David Foster Wallace film. <laughs> and our last film. Or David Foster Wallace in real life. Oh, David Foster Wallace. We keep bringing oh, He's the new David Lynch of the show. The last film we are talking about in our last few minutes in the spoiler-free version is Tully. We'll get into much more detail in our podcast. Just continue listening afterwards. You'll hear us. Tully is the new film, the third collaboration from... Co- uh, uh, sorry, Juno, director and writer Dabla, Jason Reitman and Dabla Cody and the second collaboration between the pair and Charlize Theron following Young Adult. The plot, we won't go into too much detail. Charlize Theron plays Marlo, who is very freshly on maternity leave, expecting her third child hus- with husband Ron Livingston. Uh, they have two other children, the first of which their son requires quite a bit more attention than other children typically do. Um, Marlo's wealthier brother offers to her purchase for her or to fund for her a night nanny tully played by Mackenzie davis of blade runner fame and also uh, probably the most highly acclaimed black mirror episode san junipero um we'll leave the we have some quite if we've been discussing it privately we've had quite big differences on our views on this film so i'm really looking forward to getting into it um i found the performance is very good i had a lot of major issues with this but there were also parts i liked a lot i found it broadly speaking very mixed I thought the opening of this is very effective in delving into a subject that we don't usually see explored on film. Um, the way that this movie shows us the, the, all the stresses in Tully's life, having to deal with a kid who's, who's acting up and it's difficult to deal with, and then a new baby, and then a dad who isn't around as much as he should be or paying enough attention to her, uh, you start to really feel it. I feel like the direction was pretty spot on as well. I had a sense of doom. You know, there's this growing sense that things are going to just cave in in her life and and yeah i I was concerned watching it i it's um very effective at that point maybe a little bit you know too quippy in the script but otherwise at that moment i was on board okay it's my turn to be the alternative voice in this panel uh, on this panel oh i hated this film you're not the alternative voice I, I hated it too. Yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, didn't you like it early on? Yeah, the first third of the movie, the first twenty or thirty odd minutes, I was getting on board, and I think that's why I hated it more, because I think it sort of lulled me into 
feeling they might like it. It was it was deception. It was almost like I was, you know, betrayed by a movie. And I, you know, not like a real person, but almost like that. It felt like I was getting into a relationship without realizing what I was getting into. And, you know, I was betrayed in the end. So, uh, as you can hear, already very diverse points of view on this. Um, so, please, if you are listening to 2SCR Live, just continue listening for all the wonderful programming. But if you'd like to hear our much more in-depth spoiler discussion of this film, it is in cinemas now. It, you can go to find us Film Fight Club on iTunes and podcasts everywhere. If you aren't going to see the movie, but you just like hearing bitchy takedowns, please listen to our Tully discussion. We will be back. This next, is a very bitchy takedown. We will be back next week with City Film Festival director Nash and talking in much more detail about the City Film Festival program. Deadpool 2 is in cinemas now, and Dakota Chrome will be in cinemas on June 7th. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Good night. And we are back on our podcast extended discussion talking about Tully, Tully, Tully. New Diablo Cody film. This is a, as said, a spoiler discussion. So if you haven't seen the film, we strongly recommend you avoid spoilers and come back and listen Unless to some podcasts. Unless you're never going to watch time. it or you don't care, in which case, here we go. I don't want to see very possible. a movie. So, uh, Tully, I think uh, I think we're each going to talk for a little bit about our general views on this film and then throw the discussion open like we did with Mother and some of the particularly divisive films we have done. Um, <laughs> that is, Mother, that's a very good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because very... very different film talking about... Very different view on motherhood. Very different take on motherhood. <laughs> so, yeah, um, Tully for me is essentially about two things. One is motherhood and the characteristics of early motherhood from a... Uh, dramatic practical perspective. The other is regarding the thematic elements of it, which includes that, but is also related to the issue of health and specifically mental health. They, they, the film deals with this in very broad terms. I liked in parts its depiction of the issue of mental health. I found that um, there's an amazing film two years back. My favorite 2016 film is a film called Swasami Man, which deals with some of the similar issues in this film, I think in a very intelligent way, in that it deals with, it says... If you issues regarding mental health, they're not something to be shunned under the carpet or sidelined or overcome, but more importantly, to be understood. And I feel it's a very mature and very good approach to these issues, which is very rarely covered in film. I feel Tully at least set out to do this, which I find very admirable. I found it endearing. I did, take, however, take issue with how the plot was executed. Uh, we were talked earlier in this episode about Dead, oh, no, about Kodachrome and how the film hinges on a reveal. This film hinges on a big twist that takes place in the third act. M. Night Shyamalan worthy. In that Shyamalan worthy, which is... Actually, no. M. Night Shyamalan's twists are a lot better. You know, like <laughs> this is more like the meme version of M. Night Shyamalan where people no, always talk more, about how terrible his twists this is, are. This is more like Adam Sandler Pixel's twist. Well, this is... Oh, that was a terrible film. <laughs> but, 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 but this twist is a dramatic ploy we have seen in so many She's films. not real! Including in this film, which we don't talk about, which is the podcast, is exactly. named after. Exactly, I was about to say that. Now... I don't have an issue with the twist in and of itself. Um, there were tw- there was a similar twist in Simon, except in that film, they knew that the appeal of the film to the character did not rest on the reveal. It rested on our investment in the narrative and in the characters. And I feel that was not handled as well. And there were, the, there were clues throughout, which I felt were a little bit too on blatant. The nose, on the like nose. the song that we used to lead you in, You Only Live Twice. Yes, there is a cover of this in the film. Oh. And if you know the twist... Look, we should explain it a little bit more clearly. The, what the It's called Tully because midway through, you know, near the beginning, um, the brother... Uh, is it? It's Mark Duplass, right? Yeah, yeah. Of yeah. Um, Catherine, Catherine, Charlize Theron, who I should note is is really good in this movie. Yeah, oh, yeah. performance is one of the good, yeah. best things about the film. Not yeah. the best. Um, yeah, she, she's typically good. Mark Duplass says, "Hey, I know you're struggling. So how about you take on a night nanny? I've, it's really helped us with the kids. Um, and you know, we'll I'll pay for it for you. He's her brother, 
Um, she says, okay. And then Tali arrives, big-eyed and manic pixie dream girl, and uh, magically transforms Mallow's um, life, puts everything in order, gets the house together. Um, and then it's revealed that Tali is, in fact, not a actual night nanny, but a manifestation of Marlo's younger self who has come, you know, forward in time to help imagine, you know, through Marlo's psyche to help her reunite with the past self that she lost touch with in, uh, after the stresses of childbirth. I think, yeah. Okay. Uh, I have lots and lots and lots and lots of issues with this movie, but I will begin somewhere. Firstly, to use the title characters, uh, you know, the title, sorry, the character, Charlie Theron's name in this movie. Marlo. 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 Oh, God. Very obvious. Detective novels. Very, oh, no. I, I, very I, obvious Heart, heart of Darkness. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. I never picked up on that, actually. Anything yeah. it goes into, curves right, and finds right. the meaning, you know, finds oh, the God. true meaning. Damn. Yeah, no. well, um, all right. I, and you say, How did I miss that? And you think <laughs> Kodachrim was derivative? I'm sorry, that hit me in the face like a sledgehammer. Ouch. Tully, Tully isn't derivative in that way. That that that's This is just like poor referencing. This is more like Deadpool 2. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. That, that was really... Uh, I wish this was more like Deadpool 2. That would sort of make me sort of gulp it down slightly easier than I did. The second issue and the biggest, biggest issue I have with this movie is how it uses mental illness to begin with. It's a pure functional plot device. And I'm sick, I am tired, and I am angry with movies that use mental illness as not something which is an actual condition that needs to be explored through the movie and the impact it has on people, but rather the convenient twist or something that is meant to shock you. Yes, the eventual intended meaning may be to make people realize how it makes people feel. The stresses of childbirth. Yes, but I think it really robs you of that real emotion by making it into a shock value twist. And, you know, the it comes in the third act. If you need it to comes ex- right at the end. Yeah, it, if you need to explore the actual stresses of mental illness, introduce it early on so people can really realize... That's, Club did. That's a good point. Ex- introducing it at the very end means that the movie has no time to go into depth about what does this mean for the character. Yes. And it's in a rush to wrap things up with a tidy little bow at the end, which means that, yeah, th- this subject is, is... You're cheated out of a real exploration of this subject. I mean... And, and, yes. I, I, and I agree with that because I'll use this Sami Man example earlier. After following the twist in that, there was an ex- it was a third act and you got to explore the impact on Paul Dano's character... I am going to disagree with you on the point of how it's used as a plot device because I think the one character we have not spoken about in any detail at all is the son, who is not on screen a lot, but is a hugely significant character. And the film, as much as it's about the relationship between Marlo and Tully, it's actually more about the relationship between her and her son. And there is a heart-rending moment at the very end in this regard. Now, it is about how both characters are perceived. Both are su- uh, Both are suffering in their own way. And it is how they... Re- relate to each other. I don't think it was a ploy that was thrown in. I think it was something that once you, and I do want to re-watch it, once you go back and watch it with the twist in mind in terms of interactions when Tully was present with others, uh, whether it be at the bar in Brooklyn or even the I the scene with, uh, there's several of the scenes in the film, uh, I found it more compelling than anything else. I do take issue with the plot machinations surrounding it. I think that it could have been executed better. But actually deploying this, which is, which is as it is really seen in film, I found very interesting. Okay. God, where to start with this goddamn movie? All right. We're, on, we're not on radio, right? So no, say, where to start with this piece of shit? All right. I know how you feel. I know how you feel. Okay, uh, here we go. Um, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If I'm to be charitable about with this movie, because as we've been discussing before, if we talk about this as a movie that's actually about issues of mental health, it really doesn't do it any favors. But if I'm to be charitable, I can say, okay, it's not really so much about, you know, literal um, uh, postpartum psychosis as it is, uh, you know, an extended metaphor about getting back in touch with your younger self, right? That That's a more charitable way to read it. But if I look at it that way, that raises a bunch of questions like, 
if this is just a metaphorical um, expression of, of Charlie's Theron, Marlowe's past coming back to her, how come she's never she never realizes that? How come she never speaks to this person as if it is a person from her past until right at the end when the reveal is coming, uh, you know, as if it's herself? So the movie pushes you in the direction of looking at this as if it's a literal occurrence within or you know a real occurrence within her mind that she's having a psychosis of imagining this person is there it's we were also pushed in the direction of reading it that way by the way that um the husband says at the end while Charlie's throne is in hospital that he's heard about her night nanny but he's a bit confused about you know who she like i don't really know much about her so the movie is trying to say yes this is a psychosis it's a hallucination she's because the implication is that she's told her husband that the night nanny has come but the perception does change later in the film as we learn in the hospital so there is the progression in terms of how she perceives yeah. the figure and it is arguable I, I agree with your interpretation but it is arguable that even at the early stages when she says things like oh you look so young that she was very cognizant of who she was it is open to interpretation but I do t- I take mm. your view on this but let's talk about the husband uh, one, uh, yeah, one more point on that in it before <laughs> Okay, the problem is um, with that husband thing in hospital is the movie is, you know, the the whole premise doesn't make any sense. I know that the husband is neglecting Marlo in terms of how much time he spends with her, but I can't believe that he doesn't care about the raising of the child to the extent that he's not even going to look at or ask to see the person who's, who's looking after her. Um, the new baby, he, he's never seen her. He's never said, okay, you're leaving the baby alone with a nanny. Are you sure? Can I see her? I don't know. It could happen. Okay. Uh, it could happen, but it's pushing the movie into, you know, into an unrealistic territory. I think a new father is going to want to see the person, you know, like, is, is this person a psychopath? The person who's looking after my baby. More likely than this. More likely, yes, but not necessarily. Okay. Uh, let's Let's talk about the husband because how you perceive the husband will eventually shape how much you believe in the movie as such. The husband's character is presented as this kind of deadbeat person who is somewhat mildly okay in the sense that he cares about fatherhood, but he doesn't understand the responsibilities that come with it. I think he cares about fatherhood enough that he would check at least on the person looking after the the baby. I, I, I think he would... He's one of those people who tries to tick boxes about, oh, you know, I've asked my wife uh, and, you know, kissed her goodbye. I've made sure that I'm taking the lunch that she's made for me rather than actually partaking in the responsibilities of being a father. That's a fairly regular thing, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I can totally see that. But also at the same time, that's why I don't buy this random transformation that happened as soon as he realizes that Marlo is actually suffering with this mental illness. Well, that's the pro- whole problem of this movie in general. Everything has to be wrapped up in a way that reassures yeah. audiences on the way out and, immediately and, 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 and instead and of the, leaving us with any complications I mean, or questions. There, there's, nothing, there's nothing to indicate that he would abandon his routine of playing random video games at night instead of taking care of his kids and sharing responsibilities with Marlo. But suddenly at the end, they're shown in this happy montage kind of way of listening to iPod playlists together Look, the, and, the movie and sharing house cheats house. you out of any of the kind of big complications that are implied by the reveal at the end. Because, as I keep saying, it's a race to the happy ending. So, since I've said before, you know, we this should be viewed as a literal story about mental illness as opposed to just a, an extended metaphor. It, it's completely rubbing us of the significance of what's just been revealed. Tully's psychosis is severe enough that she's put her own life in danger and she's theoretically going to put her own children's life in danger. You know, the it after she drives a car off a bridge because of a hallucination, you know, that's not the time to, for us to race to the happy ending. That's a sign of, like, s- severe mental imbalance. The movie really... Um, it uses mental illnesses as a twist, and you know, a re- reveal that uh, as a way to impress us with the cleverness of its writing, and doesn't deal with the significance of what it's actually depicting. 
Okay, um, I've did I did address this in passing earlier, but I'm going to say in terms of the plotting, in terms of the ending, I do agree that, and I would have been happy to see a longer film or have the twist revealed earlier. This is, these are issues that should have been teased out and dealt with in much greater detail towards the end of the film. We should have seen in much more detail in terms of how it impacted on Tully, so, so on Marla and yeah. her family. Um, I feel, as I said, this was dealt with much better in other films, including in the case in point is Sosami Man. Um, in terms of the husband's uh, transformation, I don't think there was a transformation at all. I think we saw him become cognizant, feel guilty, whatever, about what he the impact of his inaction had clearly had on Marlo. And we saw maybe him starting to change. I don't think we've seen a revolution in his character. We've seen him potentially start to change, well, which is a good the, thing, but we have not seen all about turning these characters. You know, clo- one of the closing images of this is like now they're preparing the food or watching yeah, up or whatever it was together. Sharing the implication, sharing the iTunes. Yeah. Pipe, but the implication is like now. All right, fuck first that. thing. No, excuse me. It's the fir- <laughs> it's the it's the first thing. This is. Um, he may change. He may relapse. We don't know. I All feel like John the movie is this the first thing he's done. The, I think the movie definitely implies, even if it's the first thing he's done, it's such a rosy, literally like, hey, you know, blue, warm, soft light and a nice song on the soundtrack and a cutesy moment to end on. I think the implication is definitely like things have now changed for the better yeah. because of her mental imbalance, which I think is a is kind of fucked up message. We we went from Juno to La La Land in like one second. I but- don't think it is the happy ending It's uh, you're putting it up to be. But um, I appreciate it. It ends that. on a cutesy romantic uh, image of like, you know, she's listening to an iPod and then they now he comes to share the load with her and she, that she he takes the uh, other earbud. So they're listening to music together while they sh- do the work together. And there's warm golden light coming in through the window. I think it was an improvement. I think it's far from ideal. I think it's saying things could get better, not things are better. All right. Um, I have another issue with this movie with regard to the way that I feel it tries to mask its twist. Um, its insistence on being clever instead of being honest in its storytelling. It's something I don't look, it could just be me, but it's something I, I'm surprised not to have seen other people bring up. I feel like this movie was really gay baiting the audience. It, I feel like this movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 This okay. movie is trying to, in order to stop the audience from thinking ahead and predicting where this is going. It tries to trick you into thinking of other directions that the plot might potentially go, were Tully not to be revealed as a manifestation of Marlowe's psyche. I remember when you said there's going to be, you know, a third act twist that's going to radically change your opinion of the movie. I thought that's what what you're referring to that they're going to. And when that threesome sequence yeah. happened, I'm like, here we go, yeah, here look, we go. I think finally, I th- think the movie is trying to set you on a course to think there's going to be a lesbian relationship between Tully and Marlo. Um, there's a lot of hints towards it. You know, they 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 when uh, Tully arrives, she's you know really big eyed, constantly making up close eye contact with Marlo. You know, Marlo goes on to talk about how she, you know, was really, really in love with this girl when she was younger. Um, you know, they're having, it's, they're getting increasingly intimate till they're having, um, you know, late night drinking wine together in the spa moments. And then Tali becomes engaged in, in sexual activity with Marlo and her husband, right? Um, it goes further into that. When uh, Tully's first appeared, the camera's sort of lingering over her butt and suggesting that Marlo's looking at it. Yep. And then later, so it's clearly setting you on the course of like, okay, there's going to be a lesbian attachment for that. And then they explain that in the dumbest way later on with um, a, a line of dialogue where, like, where Marlo says to Tully, like, oh, your, your butt's going to sag as you get older. Everything's going to change. No, 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 no. That's not what that was about. That was about setting us up to believe that there's a sexual attraction between these. All right. These women. I'm. I find this very curious. This is not something I had considered. I'm. I'm very interested in the human's perception. I thought it was going to go one of two ways. Either as it did, as I was, as it was very clear, it would do within about twenty minutes. The reveal that she would be a manifestation, or alternately, something much more clever. Sinister. I guess you didn't take the bait. I. 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 I, no, I, I, I this is not something I even. I. I. I talk about. It's not the direction I thought it would go. Um. In terms of the threesome sequence that was referred to earlier, I look at that as more of a plot issue uh, uh, than a 
uh, thematic issue, and I'll explain why. I did say earlier that I have a lot of issues with how this had panned out, and at this point of the film, when we're getting towards the third act, it, as Chris alluded to, it is very, very strange that the night nanny should never have met the father who is yeah. also living in the house. So there has to have been some interaction at one point, and this seems a way to do it. I appreciate the direction they were sort of going with this, and um, it was probably one of the better pieces of misdirection in the following scene. It does serve as a piece of misdirection when they're sitting downstairs and what we talked about last night. And in retrospect, you can look at that either way. I also appreciate right. well, that. He just says, wasn't that weird what happened yes. last night? And that was one but of the best pieces of misdirection it was. He's perfectly vague enough that we don't predict yes. where it's going. So I, I, I did appreciate that. Um, I also appreciate that as this is a film. And I, I will say at this point that um, having spoken to... This is a film that many people will relate to differently, people empathize with differently, and certainly it's a film I can only empathize with to an extent. When I was coming out of it, I was chatting to Chris, and I remember saying to him that I felt it was predominantly an issue of mental health. Um, I've since revised that opinion. I do believe it is predominantly a film about the issues of motherhood, but I feel I had that perception because this is a film I can only empathize with in certain ways to an extent. I think theoretically this concept could have been a interesting way to look at the problems of, you know, like you'd lose who you are because of the stresses of, of life in general and or specifically in this case, motherhood. Um, but I think feel like the movie would have been better served if it had been honest. If, you know, even if Tully had just come out and said, look, I am you from your younger days. I'm here to help you get back in touch with the things you've forgotten about instead of trying to be more clever than its audience. I think that could have made for a much more satisfying narrative and the plot wouldn't have had to twist itself in all these directions or, um, you know, quite offensively, I think, like gay bait you to, you know, expect, you know, there'll be a gay content in this movie, which is actually just a ploy to, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I no, felt that was there. No, and, you, you're quite right. And, yeah, and, uh, I think I it think was I, definitely I do want to add queer baiting to its already long list of sins, which this movie's already committed. So I would try to, you know, stay away from that because I couldn't speak to that content clearly enough, but I think you're right. There are enough hints in there subliminally to actually emphasize that that might be a thing. But also on like that point where I felt postnatal depression, especially for like, you know, after pregnancy, is a serious issue and a lot of mothers do go through that. And there is this narrative in popular culture about how children are the greatest gift of God and they're the best thing to happen to you, but nobody actually talks about the actual physical and mental toll that that takes in bringing up a child. So I think there is a sincere, honest movie in there. Yeah, and you see it in the first half. Yeah. And it's refreshing to see this subject being delved into and, and you making you you know feel the tension exactly. and, I'm not, and I'm putting not, you into a mind space. And I'm not surprised this was released to coincide with Mother's Day. I think that'll be not significant, significant part of the audience. And some yeah, of the sequences yeah. were referred to earlier. We referred to um, the encounter with her husband is something, among many others, that people can see, oh, this is what... Maybe this is something where I can empathize because I've seen people go through this or because I've gone through it myself. And it's been mm. interesting talking to different people about this film and the different perceptions. I found this discussion very curious yeah. and very interesting. It's possible that people who have suffered through similar levels of stress after giving birth or in, on raising kids will forgive the twist simply because some you know they're seeing somebody out there trying to, to express the pain and the struggle. Yeah, but but then it's not sincere. It doesn't follow through. I mean, just no, I agree, it doesn't. But still, maybe for some people, it'll be enough that simply that somebody's finally tried to to show this in a mainstream entertainment. But that's the same way of saying, you know, if you have one minute of queer, queer representation, that's all you need in a movie. You know, you don't need. It would be good to see it done well. Yeah, exactly. Of, uh, like you know, this if you shallow twist-based exactly. narrative. Yeah. It robs you of that actual significance of what this issue could actually mean for a lot of people. Um, can we talk a second about the performances? Uh, we mentioned Charlie Stone earlier. I mean, she's come off three action films, and there's a very different role, and she was excellent in this. And Mackenzie Davis, I mean, this evoked elements of a San Junipero performance, which I think was a series high. Um, mm -hmm. She's absolutely superb. We saw her in Blade Runner. It was certainly not as much of a media role. Livingston gets a lot of lip service roles where it's kind of like, we need a guy who's in his 40s who can just sort of jump in and be the you know side figure. But he was a little bit media in this um, I appreciate I appreciated the for the what Reitman managed to get out of his singers. This is the third type collaboration between uh, the pair. I and the sec third between uh, the second with Charlie Theron. Um, I know Chris is not a fan of Juno. I did not particularly like Juno. I didn't 
Uh, I was indifferent to it. I this isn't as bad as Juno, probably. I, I quite like Juno, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 I, I still prefer Young Adult to this. Young Adult, I think, is a big step above this and a much more honest narrative. You know, That's a movie that has good twists in terms of going to places you don't expect it to without trying to pull the rug out and using dishonest um, misdirection And Young Adult tactics. had a pretty big twist, but the film didn't rely on the twist. It wasn't its no. biggest note. You could en- Even if they hadn't had the twist in that film, you would be able to enjoy it like, almost as much and yeah, have and about I, the same impact. And I don't, I don't feel like the twist was dishonest in that film. No, not at all. I think and, and it, it was It, it was, was in keeping, I think. Yeah, it was yeah. organic. I think it was in keeping with the characterization. And I didn't see it coming. Right from the beginning. You could easily have seen it coming if you'd been... Yeah, you know, yeah I agree. Yeah, I, I feel like this movie tried to be Phantom Thread and failed. How did it try to be Phantom Thread? You know, in trying to be like, oh, look how we interspersed all these clues in the beginning and then have this very dark and twisted reveal, except it wasn't dark, it was just twisted and sad. And just But the movie badly. doesn't treat it as though it's as sad as... Or maybe no, maybe I'm, it is I'm, I'm to reveal... Th- yeah, Wait, yeah. actually, hang on. I just remembered one... You reminded me of one more terrible thing about this movie. <laughs> We have have time. We have time. All right. You were talking about the dropping the clues throughout. The the movie has this running thing of she keeps seeing mermaid images everywhere. Mm. She sees you know mermaids being spoken about on TV. Look, mommy, it's a mermaid. I don't know if that was in the movie or I, I just imagined uh, something. Yeah, like there, that. There, were, there were two other, there were two mermaid references, one on right. the television and then the pond. Yeah, and then, and then, there then was... seeing visions of mermaids or whatever. Yeah, in, and in then water. when the car goes down the bridge. Yeah, that's the yeah, pond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I'm, sorry, the uh, river, I should say, not but, the pond. Yeah, there, there's all these kinds of hints and, and you're thinking, okay, what is this symbolism for? What does it mean? And then it's just some vision where she sees Tully as a mermaid at the end when she's driven her car off a bridge. So, it turned, so the, the mermaid doesn't actually symbolize anything. It's just a dumb attempt at artsiness that's way too self-conscious to actually register as a metaphor. I, like it, it, it's all show, you know, for the appearance of depth, but doesn't actually really, I think, communicate anything unless it went over my head. I would. No, no you, you're right. I don't think there is anything. And it, basically, what you're trying to say is, if you think you've got a clever twist in your screenplay, it probably isn't as clever as you think it is. Well, look, I actually, I'll, I'll agree with you on, on this point. On this point, I will agree. I felt it was thrown in. I didn't feel there was maybe to go over my head too, but I didn't feel there was some any ardent symbolism there. I think no. this, the the imagery was very similar, and we've seen in some other films lately too, to what was achieved to great effect in the sunken place in Get Out. And I feel this is a trend that may be catching on. That was a much better directors. image, though, oh, so and that, that was directly related to the th- thematic material that Jordan Peele was going for in that film. You know, in this, it's just like. A, a strain for some kind of poetic imagery to anchor the film or to create interest because I think one of the problems with this movie is the interest you know early on it builds so much tension it feels like combustible in terms of how many things could go wrong and there, I did feel as I said earlier a kind of sense of dread once Tully the housekeeping night nurse arrive night nanny whatever arrives um, there all of that kind of tension kind of goes away because her life is suddenly completely in order so it instead becomes about where is this going so i think um that's i guess that's what they were trying to do with the the mermaid create some kind of intrigue into you know the hint of this is going to go somewhere but when it ultimately does come the mermaid really that imagery is just once more grafted onto you know the twist it doesn't end up having any actual significance it's just there for the illusion of and it all comes full circle and satisfying reveal but there's nothing to it um in terms of the real um i've been thinking once i saw this film about some of the clues that they just dropped in there and i I think if i go back and watch it there will be even more we'll able to discern and i i do agree that there were some lax ones some blatant ones but for every lax and blatant one there was a really well-placed one there's a great scene in the bar where in brooklyn where the two of them go out and the barman is hitting on tully and and tully's and and he's Marlo's not, like, oh, you get it. Look, she's oh, he's like, no, he's looking at you. Right, and right. that, uh-huh. in retrospect, you know, that's more touching and endearing than a lot of the other um, elements I, we I, I guess so. But at that point, I was just registering that as more sexual tension about, no, actually, you are really hot. And then it gets to yeah, uh, more, more gay baiting. Marlo, exactly, more gay baiting. And then it's building up to Marlo saying, you know, there's there's something I really have to tell you. Yeah, I felt oh, like that yeah. was really because, deliberately going for. Because you know, I, I love I felt, you. Or I'm really attracted to you. Like it's really setting that when, up. When, That's the moment where I felt like the gay baiting became undeniable and not just something I was suspecting. That, that reminds me of this sort of very small, supposedly consequential scene, which turned out to be inconsequential. When Marlowe meets this acquaintance of hers, 
who supposedly yeah that went nowhere. You know, but I thought she was an ex-girlfriend that she was talking about. Right. You yeah, know, and that's uh, yeah, when I was absolutely. like, you no, know, I didn't take that either. I took that as college roommate friend situation. That's, no, no, and no, no, that was okay, from the dialogue. And, and that's okay, why, my and girlfriend when she saw I I didn't wasn't paying that much attention like Glenn, but my girlfriend viewed it that way. Yes, that's how I viewed it, especially because then she takes Tully. And you know go, she goes to that place where she was still living. Yeah, to exactly. Make, make and and she's saying, and she's saying, you know, You're I okay, really, baby. really loved this woman. So with all of that, you know, I really loved her. So when all of these things come together, Gosh, it's I just saying this like movie. this, I hate like this movie. you know, Marlo's gay, especially because it's suggesting that also there's not that much spark in her relationship with her husband. So you're thinking, oh, maybe she's yep. just married a guy, but she's actually really into women who she really, really loved. I, and I, now and that's why Tully's coming. Exactly, but no, this was just a misdirection. Oh. I took it. In the, I took it. In, I went in completely another direction, and I'm sure others will take any number of views of this film. It is in cinemas now. Please go see it and discuss and debate and let us know what you think of it we will be back as we said next week with Sydney Film Festival director Nash and Moodley talking about very different films that will be screening at the festival over the coming months there are tickets available and we will be there at the hub and it's getting exciting for the next few weeks we'll be talking about come talk to us at the hub we'll be real people yeah we'll be there all the time pretty much so just drop by just yell out Film Fight Club where are you we're real and nice and we can actually talk in real life as well we're not socially awkward we we don't fight all the time you can put together the qualities of like nerd knowledge and you know radio and and we'll like Captain Planet will be summoned yeah look for the whirling ball of fists and please subscribe on iTunes there's been Glenn Fowles and Chris Evans of Rotten Roo enjoy movies have a wonderful night good night laters